Well, thank you very much for inviting me out. It's uh, great to be here. We have the waves breaking about six feet away behind us and the sun setting over the Olympic Mountain. So that's pretty pretty good setting, I would say, for a, for a lecture. Uh, tonight I want to talk about thinking about thinking. Or, or really what I want to talk about is what is it we're doing when we try to think and what are we doing it with, right? So we have two parts of this. What are we using to think, which is our minds, not a very good tool for thinking it turns out, and then what actual processes are we going through with our mind when we attempt to think about something? Uh, so I want, I want to talk about the evolution of the mind, the growth of the human mind in, a, in an actual life, and then the process that the influences those things have on us when we set about to think and then, and then how that shapes uh, the, the various problems and difficulties and successes that we have when we do try to think. Rarely. We don't do it very much, but occasionally when we do try to think. And this is a human thing. This is not a criticism of any person. We all have uh, similar challenges to thinking because we all have these shared experiences. So first, Evolution. If, if we go back about 250 million years ago, and you can pick different species, by the way, but the one I like is the Procynosuchus. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but I think it's Procynosuchus. Was a sort of a, looked like an iguana, give or take, a little bit. About 200 is the uh, late late Permian um, period, and that is sort of the progenitor of mammals. So the mammals come from that. It wasn't a mammal. But it's sort of our most distant common ancestor with reptiles and other things. And it had a brain probably the size of a, a eraser on a pencil, maybe a little bigger. But not much bigger than a grape, if, if at all. What's important to understand with evolution, evolution tends not to eliminate things. It adds, it shapes, it molds. But it doesn't generally get rid of. It can, but mostly it doesn't do that. It, it slightly alters over time. So inside each of us is basically a little pseudocarpus brain, pseudo, uh, pseudo, pseudo sinosuchus guy always said wrong, pseudo sinosuchus brain uh, from 250 million years ago, on top of which all of these other layers and capacities have evolved. But it's important to remember that deep down inside we're all sort of crocodiles, you know, sort of lizardy type things. And I'll mention why this is important. So fast forward to about 1.8 million years ago, so we're you know, rushing by about 250 million years there, and you get um, Homo erectus. Now Homo erectus had a brain about, oh, 600 milliliters, so it's a decent sized brain. By the time you get to Homo erectus, you have a vast development. If you, if you think about like a crocodile or, or early lizards or almost no social skills, certainly no language, certainly no imagination. They, they avoided eating each other when it was time to mate, probably not at other times. <laughs> you know, this is sort of uh, uh, not, not highly social creatures in any way. Well, then you, as, you, as evolution takes shape, one path of evolution, by the way, not necessarily the best path of evolution, it's just one path. The most successful uh, path of evolution is the bacteria. So, you know, when people think of us as being successful, we like us, but it doesn't mean we're better because who's winning right now are bacteria. Because that's, if, if, by biomass, there's more bacteria on the planet than anything else by far. Uh, of living things. So, but, but one path of evolution created animals that have social capacity. So you don't just see food and eat it. So if a crocodile sees something it wants to eat, it eats it. 
if a, a, a monkey sees something it wants to eat, it probably eats it, but it has to ask itself, is there a social price? Does somebody else in my group have a claim to that food? Am I supposed to share that food? So if you watch monkeys and chimps and all the higher primates, they struggle with the same kind of problems we do. Not to the same degree, but because they're in a social system and their minds have evolved to have the capacity to deal with social situations, they have this tension, this fundamental tension. They want to eat it, very strong impulse, but another part of their brain says, and training, says, no, 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 wait. That might be to a higher status male who's going to beat you up. Or that might be, I have something to gain if I share it with my tribal members, right? And so that social capacity to think evolves slowly over time. It's a great survival skill, by the way, because generally we're better in groups than we are alone. But crocodiles are still around, so that works too. So again, it's just, it's just one possible method. So when you get Homo erectus, 1.8 million years, you get somebody that looks vaguely human, uh, and has a good-sized brain. We're starting to see tool use. We're starting to see all kinds of uh, behaviors that suggest not just a social instinct, although that, but also some hints that uh, language has evolved, higher group dynamics, possibly some signs of imagination. Artwork, by the way, begins to appear not too long after this. So about a 600 milliliter brain. And then one of the most extraordinary things in evolutionary history happens in about 1.6, 1.8 million years, that brain doubles in volume to 1,200 milliliters on average, which is what we have today. This is an unbelievably fast physical alteration, structurally. If you think of it as a cat growing from the size of a cat, a house cat, to the size of a cougar, that's the kind, that's the vast expansion of scale of our brains. Our bodies didn't get that much bigger. Think how weird that is. But all kinds of processes within our bodies had to evolve to subsume, to support that brain. A lot of our calories, I think it's 20 or 25% of the calories that we consume just go to making our brain work. So that, that as survival instinct, you think that wouldn't be great because you need a lot of calories to keep the brain functioning and to keep the brain healthy. But it, there was enough of an advantage that it was selected for very heavily in the environment. Because if you had a bigger brain, apparently you survived better because that expansion was incredibly fast. Like I said, 1.6 million years, not that long to see this kind of expansion to where we have today. Now what you get, and, and the, the analogy I like to use is if, if you think about uh, our brains today, very social, we have language, we have culture, we have all of this. And it introduces these fundamental conflicts. So again, think of food. So we've all had this problem when we were kids. Maybe we have this now as adults. But there's a cookie. You're probably not supposed to eat the cookie. But you want the cookie. The crocodile eats the cookie 100 times out of 100. Always eats the cookie. The higher primate will look at the cookie and probably go, yes, no, maybe, ah. Probably eat the cookie. Maybe won't eat the cookie in some extreme circumstances. By the time you get to us with our thinking apparatus, we have to process that and go, if I eat the cookie, I could get in trouble, might be worth eating the cookie, I might be able to lie my way out of eating the cookie. <laughs> this is a brilliant development, by the way, the capacity to mislead and lie. 
which they think now that some of the higher primates have in a limited degree. Uh, but nothing like us. We lie with the best of them, you know. Nobody can lie like humans. Um, so, so all of that structural tension is actually built into our minds because we do have the impulse to eat anything we see that we want. This is one reason dieting is so difficult because it's, it's against part of our nature, not all of it. Uh, but we do have the social instinct that says for various reasons perhaps we shouldn't. And then we have the highest rationalizing capacity, the reasoning capacity, that allows us to explain why we should eat it even though we know we shouldn't, right? That's what, <laughs> that's what reasoning is for. That's why we call it rationalizing, right? Um, so that's one thing is we have this, this, this sphere on top of our heads, this big fleshy thing that has evolved over millions of years. It was not evolved for us to think in the world in which we live. It began evolving 100 million years ago in a very different world for a very different animal in a totally different environment. And we've inherited it with a lot of other add-ons. So it's important to remember that. We aren't thinking with something that was designed for reasoning in the modern world. A lot of it was designed for reasoning in the late Permian, which mostly included don't get eaten and eat. Um, so second, so that's sort of the evolutionary history of the mind very quickly. Oh, by the way, I should mention, by far, the human mind is the most complicated thing in the universe. Vastly more complicated than the universe itself. It's not even close. And we know nothing about how it works. Only now are we beginning to barely scratch the surface of how the mind functions. So all of this take with a grain of salt because all the best researchers will tell you what we know is practically nothing. I mean, it, it is the terra incognita because it's so hugely complicated. Right. So second, now you're born. Congratulations. This is good. It's important to note you do not have the full capacity to reason till you're about 25. This is why most car companies will not rent cars to people who are under 25. <laughs> because they think they're a lot more like a prinosuchus from the Permian period than they are like a fully reasoning human being. And the statistics on this are perfectly clear. The car rental companies are correct. We are not reasoning at our full capacity you know, it varies with the individual, but till about the time you're around 25, the mind is still generating that. It really doesn't kick in at all until you go into puberty, which to me is one of the great tricks of evolutionary history, is right when you learn to think, you get this massive dose of hormones that make it impossible to think. That's just, that's cruel. As far as I'm concerned, that's not a good system. But so... Think about everything you get before you're 12 or 13 when you even begin to be able to fully use your reasoning capacities. Not fully developed, that's not until you're about 25. But you begin to bring them online. So you're born. First thing you hear is language. Now the language you're born with influences your life in any number of ways. It actually changes the pathways of your brain. It, your brain begins wiring itself for whatever language you hear. And so babies begin to acquire language. Now, you didn't ask for this language. You didn't want this language. It is a language you have. And it will influence the literature you have access to, what you hear, the ideas you come in contact, how you read. For instance, reading uh, Chinese is a very different intellectual process than reading an alphabet language. They're, they're, they're totally, basically, they're almost totally different processes. You need different parts of the mind. They track differently. You have to memorize different kinds of information. 
very much more visual, of course, with the Chinese and other kinds of languages like this. And so that influence begins. So you start getting your language. You start getting things like family structure. Do, do the children eat with just the women and the men in another room? If, if you grew up in a society like that for your first 12 years, this just seems natural to you. It becomes innate in you, like your language. Education. Do you learn to read and write? If you do, how do you go about learning to do that? Is it a punishment system? Is it a reward system? Is it a haphazard system? Do you model yourself on what's going on? Or are you told not to model yourself on what's going on? So we, we, our history, the history of your country, the, the environment that you're raised in, you don't choose these things, but they have this profound influence, not just on your worldview, but on the structure of your brain itself. Because one of the things the mind starts doing as soon as you're born is it starts reshaping the neural pathways in your mind. If you use something a lot, those neurons are very plastic. They get more connections. They grow more robust. You get better at it. This is why they say if you're a child, it's not so much that children learn languages better, by the way. I think this is somewhat misleading. But they do acquire things like they don't get an accent. Because if they hear it early enough, their minds wire for beautiful speech. They, they hear it, they know it, the mind actually rewires that. You can do this as an adult. Our brains just aren't quite as plastic as they are when we were children. So it's a little more challenging. But you don't necessarily acquire language that much faster. For instance, a three-year-old does not speak better than you would if you go to a foreign country for three years and learn that language. You would probably speak much better, right? So those, you know, it's those sorts of things to, to keep in mind. But your mind is literally being physically rewired to your environment. And again, you get language, you get relationships, you see the behaviors around you. Do you live with animals? Do you live outside? Do you live inside? Do you watch TV? Do you have a computer? Do you read books? Do you play sports? Do you go hunt animals? Do you never hunt animals? All of these things shape us. Then your friends, then your culture, then whatever else you take in from your environment, all before you have the capacity to judge at all. You, have no, you really have almost no capacity to judge. And then people say, oh, you know, teenagers are horrible. Well, maybe they are. But one reason they're challenging is because they're becoming able, literally for the first time, to look around and to question, to reflect and go, hey, wait a second. The way we do things at my house is not necessarily the way everybody else does things at everybody else's house. It might not be... We've all had these experiences, right? Where all of a sudden something just, all, the light goes on in your mind. You go, hey, wait a second. And then, of course, we think that is the answer. And, of course, that's where many of these problems come from. But, but these sorts of tensions are, are, this awakening is the awakening of the reasoning capacity to look at your world and go, hold, hold on a second. What we do might not be right. Or what those people do, I think I'm questioning that now. And it's very difficult and challenging because this faculty is just coming online. We don't know how to use it that well. And so the second part problem with trying to think is when we try to think, we're trying to think with a, 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 a mind, a physical structure that did not evolve necessarily to help us do to think. It's there, but it's not why it's there, right? It's just sort of a byproduct, apparently. Two, that mind is shaped quite literally both physically and by training 
by all the experiences we have before we have the capacity to reflect on what those experiences mean, whether they're good or bad, or whether this is how we should do things. Then, if we call thinking reasoning, systematic reflection in our world, use of evidence, well, you can see why we're in trouble, right? Because we have all of these built-in systems. Now, if anybody's familiar with Professor Kahneman's book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow is a brilliant book, beautiful, beautiful research. And one of the things he points out in there, amongst many interesting things, is that we have a bias against thinking. Because when we actually engage our minds actively in thinking, it's hugely resource in intensive. You burn a vast number of calories when you try to think. And so our bodies try not to do that. They try, no, seriously, I mean, it sounds like a joke, but it's true. We try to avoid thinking because it's calorie intensive, just like we try to avoid getting up and walking across the room, right? Hey, if somebody else is up, will you get me a glass of water? Because it's too hard to get up and get a glass of water ourselves. It's not that hard, it's just if we don't have to, we won't. This is a, a very strong survival skill. If, if, you were try, if you were back in the late Permian and you just ran around burning calories for no reason all the time, chances are you died. That's a bad survival skill. There's a lot of evidence that, that the, if you've ever done exercise and you feel your muscles weakening and you, know, you, you feel that they call lactic acid buildup and all that, a lot of modern research suggests this is all a lie. Your body is actually lying to you. It's a protective mechanism. And you're only about half as tired as you could be. But you reach about, when you've used about half of your capacity, the body says, well, that's it. We don't want you to burn anymore, so we'll send all these, not, these are false signals, by the way. They aren't true. That, oh, you're exhausted, you can't run anymore. Stop. And you'll feel it. And so this is why athletes and, and all these people will talk about the fact that, oh, you've got to get through the pain barrier. If you can get through the pain barrier, you'll be okay for a while. It's because the first thing the body does is say, oh, well, we're exhausted, can't go another step. That's a total lie. Your body is misleading you because it's a survival instinct. You don't want to burn calories unless you have to. If you start burning calories, you certainly don't want to burn more than, you know, up to a certain point of exhaustion because anything past that, we've evolved to learn that now you die. If anything unexpected happens, now you might die, right? So this is bad. And so our bodies are programmed to avoid thinking. Um, and it, the, the great example of this, people know William James, probably the greatest American philosopher. He's certainly almost our only philosopher that has any kind of world recognition. Um, and he was turn of the century, 1900s, brother of Henry James, brilliant novelist. Um, he points out that most of what we call thinking is really an attempt to maintain stasis. We don't want to think about things. We want to react automatically to things and avoid having to think. This is our, this is our normal process. The only time we really want to think is when we have a conflict. We, we see a conflict as threat. So if I believe something is true, and I get evidence that suggests it's not true, my first response is to say, I don't see that evidence. In fact, that's exactly what you'll have, is you won't realize it's there. Um, if, if people know the, the, the Robert Frost poem, Two Roads Diverge in a Wood, and I, I Took the One Last tra Traveled By, 
I love this poem, not because it's a great poem, it's a fine poem, but because in it he says, I took the road less traveled, the roads were the same, and anyway, both roads were equally covered in leaves that morning, let no step had trodden black, and turned in the undergrowth where I couldn't see where they went. So he says, they're the same, they're different, and I couldn't see them in the same poem. When my students read this, and he says, Indra, I took the one less traveled by, and I'll be telling this with a sigh, ages and ages hence, I took the road less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. And they almost invariably say, oh, he took the less traveled road, that was good, that made the difference. And I say, well, what about those lines where it says they were the same, and the lines that it says he couldn't see them? They don't read those. Quite literally, it's only like a 16-line poem, but they actually do not, I mean, they see them on the page, but because they think the poem is about the joys of taking the road less traveled, they literally do not process that information. Their minds suppress this. And this is one of the things that Kahneman, he has chapter after chapter of this in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, about how active our mind is at filtering information. One thing, so everybody's driven someplace, arrived there, and then for not noticed they've driven there, right? If you, if you drive from here to the grocery store, you'll get there and you go, how did I get here? <laughs> right? You just, right, we don't remember, right? Everybody's had this experience, yeah? We don't remember because our minds have filtered that all out. You're driving fine, but you don't need to think about it, so just relax. Don't burn any calories. Life is good. <laughs> You, you don't need to pay attention. So, you, and by the way, this is necessary because we're in such um, uh, in rich environments getting so much stimulus that if we paid attention to it all, we'd go crazy. In fact, if you think about when you learn to drive, this is the problem. You think everything is a threat. You're like, ah, oh, ah, look at it, hold on, ha. You, know, you don't know what's going on. And so you're just nervous and panic and you grip the wheel. You're like, ah, and now you drive the town with one hand playing with the radio, talking the phone, and you don't even know how you got there, <laughs> right? This is, this is the complete change. Your mind has taken on all of this. It knows what information to filter out so you don't have to pay attention, so you can get along with the important things that you're trying to do, which we mostly do autonomously. We don't think about it. We do it automatically. But not only does it take out stimulus that we don't need, it takes out a stimulus that we don't want. It actively filters, just like the Robert Frost poem. If I know what the poem means, when I read it, I will not see, literally, not figuratively, but I literally will not read the lines that tell me information I don't want. They just, the world is totally different. Again, cars just, I don't know why this is the analogy tonight, but it is. It's the, it's the effect that people say if you ever buy a new car, then you see that car everywhere. <laughs> it's not that those cars suddenly appear, by the way. Your purchase of the car does not, in fact, cause a lot of them to appear in your environment. Although this could be one conclusion you could, you could draw, but the actual thing is now you're noticing information that previously had been suppressed. But if you don't want the information, if it in some way would challenge or bother or upset you, your mind also filters this out. Because the drive is not to think. So this is hugely challenging for us. 
a great example of this is if, if you've ever, I'm sure none of us here has been, but if you've ever been in the relationship where all of your friends, everybody you know, knows this relationship is evil and horrible, and you cannot see it until the day you do, and then you're like, how could I have been so blind, right? If you've ever asked yourself that, here's the reason. You were actively filtering the content. You were reinforcing what you wanted to see, and not, you, it's not that you were ignoring it. You literally were not seeing it. It did not appear. It was invisible to you. That is the power. And so the first thing to know about thinking is we actually have two. We have a lot more of this, but we'll just summarize this too. We have a part of our brain that is constantly working. We do not have conscious control over this. And it's actively filtering our environment to get rid of extraneous information as well as information we don't want. So what do we do then when we face a problem and our active reasoning capacity is awakened? Occasionally, once a year or so. You know, every once in a while, it, 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 something jabs it into life and we go, oh, I have to think. Ah, this is where all kinds of crazy stuff happens. It's really amazing. The first thing we like to do is come up with an analogous situation and act that way. We go, has this happened to me before? If so, what did I do then? I'll just do that. This is why they say insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome. But why do we do that? We do it because I did it before. And so I'll try that again. And we're, very, we're not very strong on outcomes, but we, you know, we, we jump to these analogies and we just try to implement those. And also... You know, we're terrible at the logic of things. This is another thing that happens. We like to tell ourselves stories. Um, we don't, we're not good with statistics. All this mathematical analysis we see all the time, we're terrible at it. Again, from Kahneman's book, he went to a, a, a conference of psychological st mathematicians, stati statisticians, the people who do all the math and all the studies of psychology. So these are very math-heavy heavily trained, clinical, you know, university. These are serious people. And he said, all right, what I want you to do is just give me a rough estimate of how many, you know, study uh, persons, people we would need in a study to get this kind of outcome from it. And so they, oh, okay, they gave him a rough estimate. And they were all wrong. And they were all wrong because we cannot intuit things like statistics. We have no capacity for it because we didn't evolve in a world that gives us that capacity. We have no feel for it. We're always wrong about statistics. If you don't think we're wrong about statistics, go to Vegas. <laughs> you will discover probability, statistics, outcomes. We're absolutely terrible at it. The only way we can figure it out is to do the math. But we don't like to do the math because it's hard. And we have a bias against that. And so we're in this constant struggle be between our habits and our outlook. And we have the reasoning capacity. But we generally need to have training and careful attention to put it into use. We can reason things out. We can apply it. We just generally don't. And when we do, we mess it up in any number of ways. Um, Again, one of them, we, we, false analogies, we love those. 
Two, things we have no feel for, we'll jump to the first thing that looks reasonable or comfortable or likely. We tell ourselves narratives. We're always telling ourselves stories. And if they don't fit the story, then we figure it's wrong. A great example from my own life, I was reading Simone de Beauvoir, brilliant philosopher who talks about this, about how our thinking gets skewed by this. You're raised in a country with all these narratives around you. One of the narratives we're told is, this is what a mother is. This is how a mother is supposed to behave. And in my life, my mother did not behave the way mothers were supposed to. And so when I was a kid, I thought I was doing something wrong. So I got mad at myself. As I got older, I thought my mother was doing something wrong. So I got mad at my mother. And then at some point, it just dawned on me, no. It's the narrative that's wrong. She's a perfectly wonderful, capable, amazing, impressive human being, but she just doesn't fit the narrative. And that what threw me off for, you know, about 25 years. <laughs> right? That, that the fact that it, she seemed wrong, not on any objective evidence, but because we're told the narrative, believe the narrative, follow through on the narrative. If I get dissonance with the narrative, well, then I assume that it's whatever caused the dissonance is wrong. Because my mother was creating dissonance, she must be wrong. Right. And it's very difficult. By the way, it's hugely difficult to think through these things. I'm not, I do not mean to, to play down this at all. Often it's emotionally challenging because it means trying to shift your mind, trying to break patterns that you've learned either in your life or that are bred into you through evolution. You create habits. Habits are, are, are reflections of, a, of the, again, the physical structure of the brain. Couple more notes here. Then when you finally get around to engaging your reason, excellent, now we're thinking, oh, damn. Here's the next pitfall amongst hundreds, but a major one here. When we really start reasoning, usually what we do is we say, here's the rules. I've got an equation. I have a belief. And I'll apply it with perfect logic, regardless of outcome. This is, this is how, for instance, you get things like uh, Nazi Germany, one of my favorite examples. There were no Jews in Nazi Germany. This is a thing to understand. Once you decide, though, that the Jews, less than 2% of the population, are the problem, the logic is, then you can logically follow that reasonably with perfect clarity. Bang, 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 let's kill some people. It's reasonable. It's not unreasonable. It's perfectly reasonable given an assumption. And those assumptions are the problem. And those are the ones that's really hard to get at. So often, even when we are reasoning and being perfectly logical, because the logic we're following is based on false assumptions, we are thinking clearly. We are thinking step by step. We are following the rules of good logical implication. And yet, we, get, we go even more wrong sometimes. There's a famous experiment that they've, they've run, actually run a bunch of these, but um, where they set people up in a little test environment. They put them on teams and they said, okay, you want to help this small African village. And they have all these problems. 
and we're going to give you rounds. And you, you can have the people work to grow more food or to dig wells or to dig canals or whatever it is you want them to do, and then we'll figure out how that goes, and we'll give you feedback, and then you could go along. Almost invariably, something like this would happen. Um, they would go out and they say, okay, we decide we're going to dig a canal to bring more water into the village so that more people will be fed. What could be better? Excellent. So they start digging in the canal. Well, it turns out that because they don't have enough people working in the fields, they have some starvation. And also, the digging the canal turns out to be more dangerous than they thought, so they have some people dying. So they bring this information to the people. What do they say? Keep digging the canal. Because if we can get that canal dug, then they'll have more water and that'll make everything okay. Literally, people would dig the canal until everybody was dead. Quite literally. They would dig the entire village to death because if they could finish the canal and bring the water to the village, things would be great. Uh, uh, if people know Jared Diamond's books, he, this is the Easter Island scenario. They knew they were cutting down the last trees. They knew when they cut down the last trees, they would be doomed. And yet, with perfect rational thought, they said, okay, we will cut down the last tree to move our statues, to erect them to the gods, and then everything will be okay. And they, they actually were building statues for which they did not have the trees to move when they abandoned the project and everybody started dying on Easter Island. It's extraordinary. But the logic, once you bought into the system, it was perfectly easy and clear to follow through with it. So the last part that you need to think is not just the capacity to reason clearly and access evidence, but to question your own assumptions. Oh, this is so hard. It really, really is. I, again, it seems simple, but it's, it's not. To sit down and go, um, what I like to call, the, stealing from Nietzsche, the genealogy of an idea. He called it genealogy of morals. I call it genealogy of an idea. Where did an idea come from? Why do I believe it? Is the evidence for it satisfactory? Um, you know, until 30 years ago, women didn't want to play sports. We knew this, right? It's something could, nothing was clearer than the fact that women did not want to play sports. And then they got Title IX, which says that you have to give women at least a vaguely equal shot at playing sports. Oh, my goodness. Women wanted to play sports. Who would have thunk it? But that was a roughly three or four thousand year assumption. Right? There was no evidence for it. In fact, all the evidence was to the contrary, of course. That given an opportunity, women love to play sports, or at least they like to play Many of them like to play sports. Many of them don't care about sports at all, much like men. Right? Very even distribution. But those sorts of assumptions shape us all of the time. Uh, since we're near Seattle, everybody's clear that the traffic in Seattle is somewhat suspect, right? <laughs> lots, lots of traffic in Seattle. And until very recently, and pretty much even now, the consistent thought is, let's build more roads. In LA, there's a freeway that is a mile from side to side that is jammed with traffic every single day. It turns out that it is impossible. Traffic engineers will tell you this. In many instances, like most major cities, 
it is impossible to build your way out of traffic jams. They it cannot be done. And the reasoning is clear, and they run all the experiments, is people do not care how far they drive. They care how long it takes them to drive there. So if you increase the capacity to carry cars, people move further away. Because they say in their minds, I want to drive 10 minutes. Well, if 10 minutes is 5 miles, they move 5 miles. If 10 minutes is 10 miles, they move 10 miles. If 10 minutes is a mile, they try to move right next door to wherever they're trying to go. Whatever the minutes are, I just I don't know. I don't know. They, they have a chart of the, the sort of the flow of how far people are willing to drive. And so you build more roads, people move further out. You, it literally cannot be done in many, in some environments it works, but in many environments, things like Seattle, um, it, it has no impact at all on traffic. It's quite, it's really quite extraordinary. And we know this, but we can't follow through on this because it's so satisfying if you're stuck in traffic to think, wow, if we just had more lanes, <laughs> that would solve my problem. That would be so great. The converse of this is if you're sitting in traffic, you have to ask yourself why you want to sit in traffic. <laughs> Generally speaking, if you're in a commute in any major city in America, you know you're going to be stuck in traffic every day. Why would you choose to do that? It's a choice. It's voluntary. It's not a mistake. It's not an accident. It's not incidental. It's consistent. But we don't like to think about it that way because we say, I don't choose to sit in traffic. I don't want to sit in traffic. And so I say, my choices have not led me to sit in traffic. Some outside flaw in the universe has created traffic in which I must sit. <laughs> and therefore, the universe, i.e. road construction or some magic beam, needs to be invented that will stop me from having to sit in traffic, right? See how easy it is to switch that around. And once you make that assumption, then you go, right, build more roads. That, that will solve the problem. It's too few roads. It's, it's, I mean, it's very medieval, but that's sort of how we think about these things. Um, and it's difficult to think our way out of them because such a clear pattern. We used to build roads. They carry cars. They'll carry more cars. Well, some cities, by the way, have begun experimenting with narrowing roads and eliminating the lanes to reduce traffic, which is totally counterintuitive. But if you make it a pain in the ass to drive, then people don't do it. <laughs> right? So that, you see, it's weird. And so we often know things, but we have a very difficult time putting them into practice because they run counter to all of our experience, our habits, our world outlook. It, 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 and, and it challenges us. Another example from, from the real world. Um, so starvation, people hunger, lack of food in the world. No lack of food in the world. Our world is absolutely, amazingly, astoundingly, overwhelmingly filled with food. We have more food than we know what to do with. Um, in, in the developed world, roughly half the food gets thrown away. In the developing world, roughly half the food rots before it gets to the consumer. And we still have more food than we need. Our food systems are extraordinarily, amazingly inefficient. 
And yet our response is, we need more food. People don't starve for lack of food. Well, they do in the immediacy. But they don't have the food for reasons that have nothing to do with world food production. Because we've got lots. Huge. Super abundance. But, but we can't. But it's so hard for us to conceptualize that. That we think, well, we need more food. And if we have more food, something good will happen. Like people who are starving will have access to it. Which is not true. Not true at all. But it sounds good, and so we go for it. Right? Let's up production. We need more, more production. Right? And, and it shapes all kinds of things. So when you see those endless wheat fields of Kansas, that looks like a lot. Of, it is a lot of food production. It's an incredible amount of food production. But it, it really doesn't help people in Africa or in Asia where they might be starving. By the way, most people starve because of political, social unrest, civil wars, uh, uh, military problems, government decisions. There's a sort of famous study that says no even quasi-democracy has ever had a widespread famine. And it seems so far to be true. Let's hope it stays true. Um, because it's a strong, strong in implication that if you have to listen to the people at all, you don't let them starve. And that's generally true. It's almost always a political or, or military problem, not a food systems problem. Although occasionally environmental things will, will, will have that happen. But when we look at the world, we think, oh, not enough food for those people, let's get some more food. Not enough room for my car on the highway, let's get some more room. It's very simple, very obvious, often totally and completely wrong. And it misleads us systematically. Um, you'll, you'll see this, of course, a lot as we go into the election season. This is one of the problems that we have with political communication, is if you only accept certain kinds of information, and then you reason from that information, it's not that you don't have evidence, you do have evidence. It's not that you aren't losing logic, you may very well be using logic. It's just that you've selected your information to produce a worldview that looks completely and totally different from your neighbor's worldview. And they can't be communicated because the assumptions that you, that you operate from are generally unspoken and certainly unquestionable. And when they are questioned, oh, that gets everybody's feathers in an uproar because we don't like this. By the way, this visceral response is your evolutionary training. It is your body saying, if you have to start thinking about this, you're going to burn a whole lot of calories. <laughs> and it will be painful and unpleasant. Don't do that. Push off the dissonance. Reinforce the harmony. My logic of the world makes sense. By the way, I love conspiracy theories for this reason. I just, I, I just, I think they're the most beautifully elegant uh, and preposterous things. But what they do, what conspiracy theories do, is allow you to construct a simple, comprehensive worldview with very few assumptions, which then explains everything, <laughs> which is convenient and comforting, and wrong. But, but still highly functional in the sense that it saves you from having to think about all kinds of things. Uh, by the way, the, the, the counterpart 
to Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, was the book by Malcolm Gladwell called Blink. If you're familiar with this book, it's utter crap, totally misleading, and he falsified about half the evidence. That was a huge bestseller because it told us what we wanted to hear. No dissonance. Friendly, happy, just blink and think and good things will happen, which is just totally nonsensical. I mean, if you have the opportunity to think, all the evidence suggests careful reflection and analysis of the evidence produces, on average, which is the best we can do, vastly superior results. Not thinking, the power of not thinking is not very great. Let's put it that way. Professor Kahneman's book, based on the research of hundreds of scientists, he's a Nobel Prize winning uh, economist and psych psycho psycho psychoanalytic psychoanalytic economist, something like that. Uh, anyway, Nobel Prize, lots of researchers, lots of prizes, billions of dollars of research at all the major universities all over the world, hugely documented. Didn't sell half, one-tenth, one-one-hundredth of the number of copies of Gladwell's Blink because not so comforting, not so helpful, little more complicated, vastly more nuanced. And we go, oh, well, that's nice, but it's really long, and I don't want to read that. Uh, this nice short book that has cute stories. I like stories. Tell me the stories that make me feel good. Right? And then we fall for the stories every single time. And we love them, and they tell us we're happy. And then the part of our brain that filters things is happy because we don't have to engage our analytical thinking. And we certainly don't have to question any of our fundamental assumptions. And that is really the challenge. If you do stop and try to question them, by the way, this is an exercise I really recommend people do. Um, it, it's challenging. It is difficult. I, I, will, I will admit this. No, no question about it. Um, is to you know, write down three or four of your most fundamental beliefs, things I, these things I hold to be true, and then go at them with an ax. Just absolutely assault them. Ask yourself, well, where did I pick this up? Did I learn this in school? Because I know everything I learned in school was accurate. <laughs> Did my parents teach me it? Because I know everything my parents taught me is true. Maybe my neighbors. Maybe I learned it on TV. Everything on TV or the internet, everything on the internet is accurate, so that's good. Right? So where did I pick this up? How has it been reinforced? Why do I believe it? And then, and this, by the way, is the beauty of the history of philosophy, is because you can find a pretty prominent philosopher who disagrees with everything. So this, this is, but I, I, I always recommend Plato. If you want to read something great, read Plato, because Plato's idea, particularly the Republic, um, because his idea of government is an absolutely abysmal, horrifying, totalitarian, repressive regime of the worst sort. It's like Maoism gone wrong. Not that Maoism wasn't wrong enough. But his argument for it is so beautiful and so right. If you believe in democracy, you need to be able to answer Plato. And anytime I hear people criticize democracy, I always hear these echoes of Plato. I go, oh, he said it much better. He had his argument was much clearer on what you're saying. And so if you're going to have an argument for it, you need to be able to answer Plato. He's worth wrestling with. It's not that he's right or wrong, it's that he's worth wrestling with because he makes you challenge your assumptions. He'll make arguments that are so clear and so well supported, and yet they seem so wrong-headed, for instance, that parents should not be allowed to raise their children because clearly parents do such a terrible job. We've all had this thought, right, where we look around and we go, really? You need a license to drive a car, but you can just have kids willy-nilly. 
Um, you know, that, that, that idea is not new. This goes way back. Plato looked at that. Uh, there should only be one philosopher, Plato. Um, we, should, we shouldn't allow music, or we should have a lot of restrictions on music, uh, because, you know, it's bad. It makes people think crazy thoughts. Um, and so when you look at philosophical history, what you do is you can find somebody who assaults every one of your fundamental principles, but does it with power, with, with logic, with evidence. And you have to go, ooh, now, now, boy, I better stop and think about that. So, for instance, in the United States, all men are created equal, which is preposterous and wrong. <laughs> Nothing could be clearer than that all men are not created equal. And yet they keep telling us this. I don't know why. Believe in everybody's equal. Really? Is that true? Because I'm not going to be able to play in the NBA. Can't jump, can't run, can't shoot. Can't dribble a basketball. Right? I'm, I'm, even if I practice, let's face it, I'm not going to be that good. So, am I equal? I'm different. I might be differently good. You might be differently good. Equal? Ooh, that's a very high bar. It's a very suspicious claim. I have good reasons to assault that. Good reasons to question that. To throw a little doubt on that. To wonder what that would mean in practice if we really thought all people should be equal. This is, this is Lake Wobegon, right? Where all the children are above average. <laughs> You know, this is, this is the, 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 when they test students, I hate student testing, but they do all these national and statewide tests of students, and they want everyone to pass. And I'm like, well, what kind of stupid test has everyone pass it? That's not a test. We're going to have a tournament, and everyone's going to come in first. Yay! Right? This is sort of, this is silly. It really is quite silly. But because we, we think that makes sense, and we want all students to do well, we fall for it. And so these are just a few of the traps that happen to us when we try to think. Um, and, and the most difficult thing, as I said, and Kahneman goes through this chapter and verse, as do many others, is to find those fundamental beliefs that influence our thought processes and try to examine those. And if you can do that and then you get a little perspective, you go, oh, okay, sometimes the light goes on. Often you find out your fundamental principle is really good and sound, and it's good to know that. So you can kind of set that aside and go, there it is. I read a novel once, I can never remember which one it is, where a guy had a safety deposit box, and in it he kept slips of paper in which he had written things he was sure, was sure were true. And he kept them in a safety deposit box. Here, I, I, know, I know that's true, and he kept them in there. And then periodically he'd go through them and find out that half weren't true. And he'd take them out and he'd put it back. I, just, I thought it was hilarious, right? So it's good to have uh, uh, um, these ideas. And we, By the way, we can't function without them. We would be totally disabled if we were in a world where we had to constantly evaluate all of our fundamental beliefs and all of our habits. We wouldn't be able to function. And so this is the other part of thinking. To function effectively, we actually have to not think about almost anything almost any of the time. <laughs> it's weirdly, weirdly true. It's only occasionally can we stop and think about a few really important things for a little, little slice of time. By the way, if you can concentrate for more than an hour, you, you are highly trained. That's usually about the maximum the average person can concentrate at all. It, 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 you know, if, if, if you concentrate really hard for an hour, you will be exhausted. When you do this, 
Well, again, we'll, just, we'll stick with the car driving analogy. So good. If you've ever been someplace in the mountains where it's really windy and maybe the wind is blowing and it's raining and it's dark and all of a sudden you're really concentrating and you have to drive like an hour, an hour and a half like that, what happens when you get out of the car? Yeah, you about collapse. You're like, oh, I'm totally exhausted. Anytime you really concentrate on something, driving a car, thinking about your past, trying to fill out your taxes, you... you you, you, you get that same energy, and it's totally draining. It's also a way to check if you've really been thinking. <laughs> and that's where I want to finish. If you think you've been thinking and you aren't exhausted, you haven't been thinking. <laughs> it, it, quite literally, this is true. If, if you like, oh, well, that was very refreshing. I had some thoughts. No, generally, this is, this, is, this is not how the thinking works. The thinking has to engage your, primarily your neocortex. There's all kinds of other aspects of this that have to be engaged. Um, and when you do that, you begin burning tremendous amounts of energy, so much so that you will be physically exhausted. And anytime, again, you know, college is the great example where they give you these hugely stressful tests and you've been studying already for them, and you sit down, and after you finish them, you're just exhausted, because boy, then you were thinking. You were thinking hard. You were focused. And the last note on this, it is also learnable. It's a learnable, trainable uh, process. You can learn to carefully evaluate and analyze evidence as a habit. It's still exhausting, but this is, it is possible. We can, we can do it. Humans can acquire this capacity. And so for all of the kinks and problems and difficulties and challenges that we have in thinking, we can do it, and occasionally we do do it. But mostly we don't. We, we really avoid doing it at all costs. And so anytime you start a new task, if you want to learn a new language, if you're in a country that has... Uh, uh, different habits, if you try to learn an instrument, if you try to solve a math problem, um, if you're trying to navigate a place you've never been before, ah, now this incredible human capacity, and this is the last note to, to note, the incredible human capacity to reason and to imagine. This is what sets us apart in many ways. Because we can look at the world and we can come up with completely counterintuitive ideas. We can think our way, you know, dolphins, they put them in nets, they never jump out of them. And apparently they cannot imagine that extra dimension. It's, they just can't do it. They can jump out of the water, but for whatever reason, when surrounded by a net, they, they just can't do it. And it's frustrating for humans because we look at that and we go, I know you can do it, and you won't. Humans can, although we often don't, we can jump over the net. But our history has been, occasionally we do. We do incredible things. We do things that are counterintuitive, that don't feel right, that don't follow our old narratives. When we do that, we get sort of often amazing things, sometimes wrongheaded things, but often amazing things. Again, back to Title IX. 30 years ago, roughly, 30 years or 40 years, that's 40 years, 40 years ago now, 76, is that right, 70? 74, anyway, so somewhere around there, um, Title IX passes. Now, you know, the Olympic Games, half women practically, you know, all of the college sports all over the world, this is just booming. This is booming wave. 
because we thought through four or five thousand years of clearly wrong-headed but natural seeming intuitive seeming world outlook and so that does happen we can do it it's just really hard and so when you have a problem or if you're faced with a decision you know I got best I can say is really sit down take notes by the way paper very helpful lists evidence for and con major assumptions are those good assumptions and really try to think about it because you can do it but it almost never happens by accident so there you go thank you that is thinking we're thinking about things